Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. This is your host, Dr. Kevin. And for today's episode, I'm like, can you guys hear me okay? I'm making sure the mic is working here. I think it is. I think it is. All right, so today what we're going to talk about is common pain therapies. All right, there have been some other episodes on this in the past, but I want to do a quick review here. Uh, because when we take this with the information that we've been talking about, when we're understanding pain better, when we're actually understanding pain in a way that fits current and, and modern pain science, in which we have lots of data now on and we have MRIs and all these fancy tools that kind of show us how this stuff works, when, but we, when we understand pain as the pain triangle, understand the experience of pain being created, requiring really three major components to it. You have to have the thinking aspect, the feeling aspect, and the sensing aspect in order to create an experience of pain. And if you take any one of those pieces out, you're no longer talking about pain anymore. Uh, this changes the way we talk about therapies. But I really want to talk about how we've been treating pain so far. And if you remember prior episodes, what do we do in healthcare? What are the, the four things that we can do to you as doctors and healthcare providers? In general, we can cut you, we can poke you, we can drug you, and we can look at you. Uh, and that is what we have done so far. But first, remember, all pain has three elements to it. Remember, when we understand the pain triangle and we understand those three components, the thinking, feeling, sensing aspects that create the experience of pain, we no longer start taking different categories of quote unquote pain, acute versus chronic versus that versus whatever. We start thinking pain in as pieces so that we can start separating those pieces so that we can combat and manage that pain fire effectively in the exact same way that a firefighter will learn the pain triangle and approach every fire that they go into, every unique scenario. Uh, and to fight those fires effectively, they have to break them down into the heat source, fuel source, and oxygen source. Because you can have, you know, you may have a building fire and you may have a different fire, uh, like an oil-based fire. And if you don't understand, you don't break it down, what may be effective for one unique fire scenario may be ineffective or dangerous for another unique fire scenario. Same thing for paint. And the reason that it becomes important to understand this, all this stuff, again, when we understand that no susception, a specific, that's only a specific type of nerve information coming up from the brain to the body, no susception is not the same thing as pain. Uh, please don't use those terms interchangeably if you're hearing this. Um, if you read it, just recognize the person uh, doesn't quite understand this concept that they should, but no susception is not the same thing as pain. And when we understand that all pain has three elements, Right. All pain, whether it's acute, chronic, whatever, has acute on chronic. All pain has three elements that we can sort of delve into and separate to create those come together to create pain. When this really means that all pain is pain. Let's stop, you know, trying to separate these pains. Most of what tends to be is to somehow validate one pain is quote unquote better than the other, which really makes me um, upset. I have physicians saying, well, this patient has real pain. This patient does, ha doesn't have real pain. And uh, oftentimes what people are referring to is this patient has some sort of nociceptive or a major nociceptive component to their, their, their pain. So uh, in some ways, when you think of things like active cancer, when people have big tumors and they're progressing and getting bigger and bigger in their body, uh, what they're talking about in that scenario is, is that particular individual's experience of pain has a large degree of nociceptive information in acute cancerous process or an acute infectious process or they've broken their leg. However, you can have as severe or worse pain without a nociceptive component, just as dangerous, just as harmful, right? Uh, and it's just as real. So let's quit, stop trying to 
legitimize or make one pain more valid than the other pain. All pain is pain. And if someone is suffering from pain, then they absolutely deserve our empathy. Uh, but when we, we need to understand pain and how these components fit together so that we can treat it effectively. Because how have we treated pain so far? Well, remember, we can cut, poke, drug, or look at you. And so when we look at x-rays and MRIs for, for pain, uh, they have a massive wide geographic variation. And what I tell, um, particularly physicians when I'm working with them, but even for um, uh, lay, lay groups, like community groups and things, is if you are reading healthcare reports and you're seeing wide geographic variation in a particular uh, surgical technique or injective technique or, or drug prescribing habits, the first thing you should think of is that people don't know what the hell they're doing, okay? Because if things worked well and there was evidence to support them, then it would be standard of care and you would not see these massive swings in geographic variation. And what geographic variation means is you can live in, say, Portland, Oregon, and then somebody else may live in Honolulu, Hawaii, and they have two different things, say injections for low back pain, with massively different amounts. Actually, that's a good example because if you look at Honolulu, Hawaii, Hawaii, and you compare it to um, Palm Springs, California, uh, Palm Springs has like 20 times the amount of injections being done for back pain as Honolulu does. Okay, uh, and the actual evidence doesn't support that people in Honolulu, Hawaii, have are are not doing better with their back pain or aren't healthier or are being are subjected to 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 uh, to ineffective therapies for pain. It actually means that they're probably finding better evidence in Honolulu than they are in Palm Springs. But so when you look at wide geographic variation, again, means people don't know what the hell they're doing. In x-rays and MRIs, particularly for pain, but in general use as well, we see wide geographic variation. So we see areas that lots and lots of MRIs for, for the back are being done and areas of the country where not a lot of MRIs are being done. What we do know is that overall for the country, we are seeing more and more imaging techniques as we get more and more fancy tools. Uh, even when we don't know how to use them very well, we tend to use them, use those toys much, much more. Uh, this costs the healthcare system more and more and more money, uh, both in the cost of the imaging and along with the ineffective pathways that they send us down, spin patients down to generate even more and more uh, ineffective procedures, surgeries, uh, disability associated with those as well. And what we see when it comes to pain, particularly back pain, areas of the country that use lots of x-rays and MRIs have worse outcomes for back pain than areas that don't. What do I mean by outcomes? It means there's more people on disability, more people receiving compensation uh, for back pain, more people who are not getting back to work, um, higher health care costs, more surgeries, et cetera, on areas of the country that are doing lots and lots of MRIs. So do lots of MRIs, have worse back pain. And the reason for this is because, quote-unquote, abnormal findings, the things that are often labeled on an, on an X-ray or an MRI or a CT scan are described in, in terms that really make them sound like they're abnormal or not right, are, quote, are in fact normal. We know things like your discs begin to change as young as 10 years of age, right? As you age, your discs, your bones, your skin, your muscles, all of that stuff's changed. Bones change with age. But what happens with this is we start labeling you and we start telling you that these normal findings, which are really quite normal, uh, are the quote unquote source of your pain. Now, remember in an earlier talk when we, when we were introducing the concept of the pain trial, when we understand the experience of pain has to have three components to it, a sensory aspect, 
the effective component, which is the oxygen, the emotional component, and the cognitive or the thinking aspect to it. And only when you have thinking, feeling, and sensing can you create an experience of pain. And remember, I also talked about when you start talking about pain and you say your pain is coming from, and if you're saying that or someone else is telling your doctor saying your pain is coming from a, a bone, they're not talking about pain anymore. What they're trying to infer is they're usually talking about nociception, which is why we had that talk about nociception as well. Pain doesn't come from the body. You can have nerve transmissions coming from the body, but it requires the brain to take that nerve transmission to create an experience of pain from it. Similarly, if you think about pleasure, pleasure doesn't shoot out of the body. We don't have pleasure receptors and we don't stroke an arm and all of a sudden pleasure shoots into your brain. We have a sensory transmission sensation comes up from the body to the brain and then you appraise it. Hey, is that, are you being touched by someone that you love or you're attracted to? Is there a meaning behind it? Hey, you know, this is a intimate scenario or not. It takes those three components in order to create the experience of pleasure because just like pain, if I, if I put someone in a scenario and we generate a quote unquote pleasurable sensory information, but we change those other two components. Now it's unpleasant. It's someone that you don't want touching you. It's in a bad scenario. No one in their right mind or form would call that pleasure. They would say that is not pleasurable. Yet the sensation is the same in that regard. Now pain, I mean, maybe that's not, you know, that's not the greatest or horrible analogy. I, and I hate to bring that up, but it's, but it's the same thing with pain. We have scenarios where people take a, uh, believe that the sensation coming from the body is pain. And it is also not the same because it requires those two elements. Now, when you're looking at x-rays and MRI specifically, and I forgot to mention that there is a video variant of this on YouTube at Stray Shot Health Talk, a YouTube channel as well, where I show a slide, um, and this comes from the Journal of Neuroradiology back in 2015. And what this slide shows is, is it's your age as compared to the image finding and the age-specific prevalence rates. And basically, it just tells you as you get older, if you don't have, quote unquote, these abnormal findings, then you are abnormal, right? So if you take my age, I'm around the mid-40 mark here, and I would have a, um, about 70% of people my age are going to have disc degeneration. Another 56, 50, 60% of people are going to have um, uh, low signals coming from their discs. Um, another 50 plus percent of us are going to have discs that are kind of squished. They're no longer as tall and, 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 and full of fluid as they used to be. Uh, more than 50% of us are going to have disc bulges. We're going to have, some of us are going to have herniations, about 35, 40% of us. Other ones are going to have splits in the disc. We're going to have um, wear and tear in the facet joints. We're gonna, some of us are going to have movement of one spinal segment on the other, a, a large, you know, a, a good percentage of us. And what this, this uh, particular study did is these were people who weren't having back pain. They were not experiencing pain. And what we see over and over and over again is when you look at these particular imaging findings, disc degeneration, height loss, bulging, protrusions, fissures, um, uh, bony related changes and things, we don't see a pronounced difference between people who have back pain and people who don't experience back pain. All right. And remember, what does that mean? Does that mean that those people who are experiencing back pain are somehow faking their pain? No, because again, sensation structure is not the same thing as pain. And when we understand that and we look at what is MRIs looking for when we're quote unquote using them to look at back pain, well, really we're specifically looking at that sensory aspect of the, of the pain triangle. And even more specifically, we're looking at structure and we're trying to infer and we're trying to infer that there's a specific nerve transmission coming from that structure that may or may not be true. 
Okay, but that's what we're looking at. We're simply looking at the structure and we're trying to infer that there's sensory information coming from that structure itself. Again, that sensory information is not the same thing as pain. Now, when we look at injections for pain, injections for pain, epidural steroid injections, facet, uh, a medial branch or medial branch blocks. Some people call them facet injections or people still do those. Um, radiofrequency neurotomy where we're burning the nerves. Uh, selective nerve root blocks. All this stuff, all this stuff that I that I did and what I trained people to do, what we see when we're doing injections is that you have more people like me doing them. Lo and behold, we do more and more injections. In fact, we inject the amount of these uh, amount of these uh, uh, injections have increased dramatically. In fact, a friend of mine who was particularly interested in the opioid epidemic uh, started tra tra tracing the trajectory of opioids, the, the massive increase in pres prescription opioid use, and a parallel line to it, a parallel line to that opioid prescriptions as the number of injections. So, you know, we have this opioid epidemic because we're over-prescribing opioids and we're really harming people with this stuff because we're, we're not using them in, in, in the way that makes sense. And again, we're confusing what pain is. In the same way, injections have come up and there's probably a reason that those two lines are going together. Well, we also know that these injections are not cheap, although insurance companies try to cut reimbursements for them. You have specialist societies that are trying to protect their pocketbooks, uh, sending out massive emails, getting people to write their congressmen and take their congressmen out to dinner so that we can stop fighting these, these cuts, even though there's no data that supports the use of these, these uh, injections. Uh, and folks, if you're listening to this and you're injectionist, uh, please remember, I'm a fellowship-trained pain specialist, and I did these injections, so I'm not just talking out of my butt. All right. Um, but we also, with injections, what do we see? geographic variation here again what do we when we he hear the word geographic variation what do we what does that make us think of when it comes to healthcare? It means people don't know what the hell they're doing and we see massive geographic variation again for injections of pain so areas of the country that have high numbers of people who inject people um, have lots of people doing injections areas of the country where reimbursement uh, is still effective where insurance companies haven't been able to rein in these costs um, where there's effective lobbying keeping these things being paid for have lots and lots of, of uh, injections for pain so we see different states have 7.7 .7 times difference in the amount of injections being done and in individual cities can have over 18 times different rates of these injections for pain again and the outcomes are quite different. Now, not in the way that you may suspect, because when we do these injections, this is things that I used to tell my patients, okay? This is the stuff I used to tell them for, which I still feel bad about to this day, is I used to tell patients, you know what, we're doing these injections, because if we do these injections, we're gonna help you from needing to use medications, and specifically, we're doing them to, quote unquote, keep you off of opioids, because we know opioids are bad, and nobody wants to write opioids, et cetera. Or that we're doing them to, to prevent you from surgery. This one is unbelievable. That somehow these injections will keep you from needing surgery right away, or they'll put surgery down the line, uh, you know, years down the line. Or we're doing them if they're not doing it for drugs or surgery, we're doing it because they're going to help your with your pain. And what the data shows, and what physicians should be doing, okay, is putting aside our personal biases, cognitive biases, all the stuff that influences the way we make judgments, and start looking at data and questioning the data. Because when we look at the actual data on injections, is what we find is they don't decrease the use of medications. The areas of the country with the highest rates of injections have the highest rates of opioid use. They don't prevent surgery because the areas of the country with the highest rates of injections have the highest rates of, in, of surgery. When we look at long-term outcomes for, for pain, particularly chronic pain, Injections don't seem to provide a difference. Now, some people will feel better for four to six weeks, 
Now, that interestingly, that four to six weeks improvements doesn't seem to matter what you inject. There's been studies that show you inject normal saline, which is an inert fluid. You inject steroid. You inject local anesthetic. All three, none of, you know, only one of three, again, just normal saline. And there's not a big difference in that short-term relief of pain because there's something else going on here. Hopefully, we'll talk about a, a big study that t talks about that uh, later on. But there doesn't seem to long-term outcomes on pain that is at least uh, at least coming from the injection itself. Because remember, there's three other elements to that triangle. But what we do know is that if we do more and more injections, we actually have higher rates of complications associated with them. So when you look back to 2012, people like me injected tainted steroid into patients using ineffective, uh, you know, we have a lot of data that shows these epidural steroid injections for lots of things that people are getting injected them for don't work. Uh, and over 117 people died from that. And God knows how many other people um, had some pretty awful complications with them. We have had other people that have died from the injections. We have people paralyzed from the injections. Is it less than surgery? Yes. Um, is it still harmful? Absolutely. And, and so we need to be cognizant of those. Now, what do injections target? Remember when we were talking about MRIs and MRI and imaging, and we looked at the pain triangle, what was the purpose of, the, of, the M, of that X-ray or MRI? What are you looking at when you're looking at the triangle? What are you trying to discern there? In an MRI, you're focused on sensation or really looking at the structural element so that we can infer, meaning we, we think that there's some, some sensory transmission coming from that specific structure. And if you look at injections, when we're looking at the pain triangle, what are we targeting? Again, we're targeting that sensory aspect of the pain triangle. In particular, we're, we're talking about targets, and the words that, that I used to use was we're going to look for, quote-unquote, a pain generator, which is a stupid word to use because what are we saying? We're saying that pain springs out of the body like pus out of, a, uh, out of an abscess, and pain doesn't spring out of your body like pus out of an abscess. Pain is created in the brain. The only thing that comes from the body is a nerve transmission, but we're targeting nerve transmissions. Um, and a lot of times we're targeting, quote, unquote, normal structures saying, well, there must be some weird nerve transmission coming from that. They have no data to support that. But that's what we're targeting, that sensory aspect of the triangle. Now, let's look at surgery for back pain. Now, we talked about this with uh, Dr. David Hanscom before. But surgery in the United States for back pain is an, another epidemic. We've increased over 300%. Specifically, the highest rates have increased was for spinal fusions which are the surgeries with the, with, the, with the worst outcomes associated with and, and the ones that we don't know actually who they do better for. Uh, and complex spinal surgeons, these are multi-level fusions, uh, anterior, posterior, we go from your belly and then your back and we flip people and we put all this really expensive hardware in, your, in you. That increased over 1,400% in a five-year period. Okay, And what we see from this, again, wide geographic variation. What does ge wide geographic variation mean when it comes to health care? It means people don't know what the hell they're doing. And yet the best surgical outcomes I mean the people who seem to actually get better or have the least amount of, of disability due to back pain are in the areas of the country where the rates are lowest. Okay? Now, you got to remember, with the way that our population moves all, all over the place, if you look at population statistics, because I, I, I can imagine Oregon being, well, there, you know, if you go to uh, uh, Bend, Oregon versus um, Honolulu, uh, the people in Bend may have just bad backs. Really? Do you think evolutionarily, with the mix of, of populations that we have, that all of a sudden um, our mixed population in the United States that has really had a lot of travel in the last, you know, 100 years, um, that these little pockets of people have somehow evolutionarily become more disadvantaged when it comes to their back. 
uh, it's much more likely there's larger concentrations of surgeons in those areas, which seems to be the pace. Uh, and I am picking on Ben there because about, ooh, I don't know, eight to 10 years ago, they had one of the highest rates of back surgery in that area. Uh, so much so that it, I used to say, if you don't want to go to the, if you go to the emergency room with back pain, uh, be very careful that you don't come out with a spine operation. Now, when we look at surgery for back pain, okay, when we look at surgery for back pain, again, pain, not instability, not cancerous processes where cutting something out, not broken bones that are moving back and forth, but specifically for pain, the experience of pain that takes three components of which only that structural element is one little piece of it. Surgery specifically for back pain, what are the indications for? Well, interestingly, if you actually look at the, the, the research that is being produced in the spine surgeon community, they don't even know. So one particular study which I liked is when they tried to find out how to identify patients with chronic low back pain for which spinal fusion was a predictable and effective treatment, they couldn't. The quote being, no subset of patients with chronic low back pain could be identified for whom spinal fusion is a predictable and effective treatment. Another study where they actually surveyed, they just asked surgeons, they gave them, I can't remember, like 15 different case scenarios and asked a bunch of surgeons, prominent academic private practice surgeons uh, in lots of different areas, and they were looking for a consensus on who people would operate on. Who do they actually thought, using their wonderful clinical judgment, uh, that they would that they could expect a good outcome from, and there was no consensus. The surgeons couldn't even agree among themselves on who is an appropriate surgical candidate or not. Now, this, this the 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 quote that I just used about the no subset of patients with chronic low back pain could be identified for whom spinal fusion is predictable and effective treatment. An important caveat on that is the way that they were using the the test that they were using to try to predict and pull out patients that who would get better with spine fusion were all structural related. So they were looking at things like um, uh, immobilization or big corsets. They were looking at casting. They were looking at uh, uh, injections where you go into the discs, something called provocation discography. Um, they were looking at uh, fixating. They were looking at facet joint blocks, uh, medial branch, uh, or really medial branch blocks, um, imaging, and MRI. Okay, all these things looking specifically at structure. And lo and behold, all these things that they would use to really somehow go after that structural arm of the, of the pain triangle could not predict for whom patients that the spine surgery uh, would improve for. Now, also, we happen to know who spine surgery does not work for and who get worse with spine surgery when it's done for pain. That's a different subset, and it's going to come up in another talk here. But when we look at surgery and we look at the pain triangle, what piece of the triangle are we targeting? Are we, are we attack attacking the heat source when it comes to the pain triangle, that, that thinking element? Are we treating the oxygen source when it comes to the pain triangle, that the, uh, the meaning or the emotional component? Or are we treat trying to treat that sensory aspect, the fuel source or potential fuel source of that triangle? And just like MRIs and injections, we're targeting that sensory aspect. We're inferring that somehow that pain is coming from, like pus, out of a bulging disc, or out of a, uh, a, a, a worn piece of bone and that the pain is just emerging from that, that piece of, of structure like pus coming out of an abscess. Now, the last thing that we tend to do is, remember, we look, cut, poke, and we drug. And painkillers, or which, which we're really talking specifically about opioids and pain, is the big, big deal right now because we're 
uh, prescribing massive amounts of these. We have massive numbers. I think the last number is like 40-something thousand people dying yearly, which is exceeding motor vehicle accidents. Uh, we're having more and more people become addicted to these medications. Uh, and this really started in, in the, in the mid-90s. I think I did a talk about this so I'm gonna, or a previous podcast episode, so I'm not going to spend too much time here. But basically, in 1996, American Pain Society, American Academy of Pain Management or Medicine, came out and they said, "You know what? We don't. We're not treating pain." Uh, and there's lots of people writhing around. Again, there was no data that supported that. But somehow, all these people with chronic pain were running around there, and we were not, uh, as physicians, we were doing a bad job because we have this really effective and very safe medication uh, class. It's known as opioids. That yes, in some people they cause addiction and um, abuse, but that risk is low. And we need to write more of them. With, see, and, you, and you can see where's this fundamental misconception here. Because if you don't understand pain, and you don't understand how the drugs and how the injections and how surgery and how it fits in all this stuff and what you're actually targeting, just like a firefighter fights a fire. Remember, a fire and f- doesn't say all fires are the same. They actually break that fire that the process of fire down into three components so they can effectively target their, their therapies against it. When it comes to pain in the healthcare world, we just sort of say there's pain. And then we had this consensus saying that said, you know what, there's pain and this is an effective therapy, not understanding what pain is. And it's basically just throwing drugs on all pain, despite the fact that there's different components that these drugs would, would piss. Now, also, there was some behind-the-scene things. Uh, I don't think it was um, a coincidence that Purdue Pharma released OxyContin uh, onto the market six months after that consensus statement. Uh, it was not coincidental. There was a massive marketing campaign by the pharmaceutical industry in which they actually got physicians to become paid spokesmen um, to increase customers and go out and train other physicians and tell them, you guys need to write more drugs, write more drugs. All your patients are suffering. Uh, it wasn't coincidental that the um, uh, uh, Joint Commission got involved uh, in how the VA system got involved and started mandating the, the pain as a, as a vital sign when it, it's not a sign, um, it's a symptom. But uh, same, you know, like blood pressure, there's a reason your blood pressure is going up. There's a reason for pain. It's not just pain. But anyway, they used all this stuff with really no data, evidence, um, made you know, the pharmaceutical industry made billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars off of this. And what happened next? Well, we know um, we wrote more drugs, right? When you tell doctors, you know, we only can look, cut, poke, and drug you, and then we have a drug. Now we're even being told by other doctors that we need to write more of these drugs. We write lots and lots of drugs, so much so that the United States and if you guys have been listening to the news, you know this for sure, is that we consume tons of opioids. 4% of the world's population using over 80% of the world's opioid supply. Now, one of the things that you can think about when you, when you just think of that number, okay, um, and, if, if you're, if, and you just kind of think if whether you're a healthcare provider or you're just a patient or if you're someone who has a loved one uh, with chronic pain, if that medication, if opioids worked so well for chronic pain, then, and we're consuming almost the entire world supply, despite being a very small sliver of the world's population, then the data should scream at you. We should have people dancing through flower fields. Everybody should be working. Everybody should be happy and pain-free because we are drowning in this stuff. And that is not what we see when it comes to chronic pain. Remember, I did the talk on the pain triangle a little while ago. The actual prevalence rate, the amount of, quote-unquote, chronic pain in the United States actually increased 122% in a 10-year time period. So we prescribe more of this stuff. We do more injections. We do more drugs. And what happens 
is we see more and more people with chronic pain. That's the exact opposite of what you would expect. Now, the other problem with, with um, opioids, though, is as we wrote more and more of these drugs, um, we had more people dying. As I said, now we have the prescription opioid epidemic. We have more people in drug treatment facilities, which is a major concern. We have more people um, in drug who are who have had their lives ruined by these medications. Uh, I'm going to do another talk because this is such a big topic. There's some really interesting surveys that just came out from Kaiser about this. Uh, but we're killing people with these medications. And again, we consume so much of this drug that the data should scream at us at, if this is working well for, for, for pain, and specifically for chronic pain, then we should really not have any chronic pain in the United States, which is not the case. And you look at our pain outcomes are no better, if not worse, than other areas of the world that don't have these high amounts of, of prescription drugs. Now, aside on this, uh, I'm going to get off topic just a little bit, is this is very similar to what's happening or what happened with the tobacco industry. So the tobacco industry used to promote all these lies and said that you know, there was a time when, when doctors were telling people that, that smoking was healthy and good for you, all completely bogus. They fought, you know, the, the, the tobacco industry fought, fought the, uh, you know, legislation and they kept saying, no, no, we're healthy and all your reports are made up, fought, fought, fought. In behind-the-scenes documents, they obviously knew that that tobacco was addictive and harmful, um, and they just were doing this this uh, uh, slow fight to keep their market share up. And then they went off and identified new markets. So they looked at the developing world, they looked at other countries, and then they went in there with the same false advertising and create and created new markets for their tobacco industry as the market in the United States began to decrease. This is happening now with opioids. Okay, and the pharmaceutical industries are doing it in two separate ways. One, they're starting to produce the same type of literature that was produced in the 90s, saying that there's areas of the world that, quote unquote, they're not treating pain effectively and they're not using enough opioids. Again, same thing that they did in the United States, trying to get these other countries to write more opioids. Okay, and so we see even other industrialized worlds having higher and higher rates of opioid prescriptions. The other way that they're doing it is as their drugs are coming off of patent, meaning these long controlled release formulations that have not been proven to be any better than short release formulation formulations. Um, what they're doing now is now they're getting in there saying, well, we have a abuse deterrent formulation. Somehow they're, they're going to keep people from abusing these medications. Oh, lo and behold, they're on patent and they're no longer generic to preserve their profits. And now they're in the business of saying, well, you know what? Uh, we have a problem with opioid uh, uh, abuse in this country. So you need to write opioids that have these built in whatever ridiculous systems, not not actually understand pain and let's understand how the stuff's fixed. Let's just address it with another drug. So uh, a little bit of frustration there. But if you're really fascinated by this stuff, you can see they're doing the exact same thing that the tobacco industry did uh, in the mid, what is it, 50s, 60s, and 70s. So um, uh, something to be watching if you're kind of curious there in a morbid, really awful, watching a lot of evil people do evil things ways. Now, what do opioids do then when we're looking at the pain triangle? And the answer, it actually depends because there are different areas where these medications have an effect. They have effects in the spinal cord. They have effects in the brain. Um, and they have, they have an effect out in the peripheral tissues. And those understanding how those effects work, particularly for healthcare providers, is very important because then you understand, particularly when you understand that triangle and you understand how all this stuff fits together and we understand how the opioids work, then you understand when and where to prescribe them and when and where not to prescribe them. All right? Super, super key. So when we look at how well we've treated pain, 
And what we've done, particularly in the traditional healthcare system, where we can look at you, cut you, poke you, and drug you. And if that's the only things that we can really do to you, other than talk, educate, motivate, uh, develop relations with, with try to get you, uh, work with you, um, get increase your understanding, all of which increases time, which our healthcare system doesn't really um, care about time. They don't. They just kind of push you through the market like a like a piece of meat. Um, when we look at this. We see lots of MRIs, lots of injections, lots of surgeries, lots of opioids, and yet our results have increased the rates of disability, higher rates of complications. People aren't better when it comes to chronic pain. Over 15 plus thousand, actually, 15 plus thousand, this is an older slide I was using, over 40,000 people dying from opioid um, uh, overdose deaths per year now, and an increase in the prevalence rate of chronic pain by 122% in a 10-year period from 2001 to 2010. What do... Almost all of those therapies have as their target when we're looking at the pain triangle. And almost all of those therapies are being either prescribed for, performed on that sensory component of the triangle. Okay? Almost all of them, when we're injecting, we're targeting that sensory aspect of the trial. When we're doing surgery, we're targeting targeting that sensory aspect of the trial. When we're ordering x-rays and imaging, we're looking at that sensory component of the triangle. And opioids, oftentimes we're writing them because we think that there's something coming up from that sensory component of the triangle. Okay? Again, we're ignoring the other two. But if you were a firefighter and you had a fire and you understood how the components of the fire fit together, heat, oxygen, and fuel source, when you were looking at a fire, you would break it down to see what are the major drivers for the fire. And if we actually looked at the risk factors for chronic pain, of which we have lots and lots of data on, what do we see? Well, we, there is some genetic, there is, uh, there is an epigenetic, which has influenced the genetic on our genetic code. So it has the decisions you make about what you eat, how you act, who you're around, uh, the activities that you actually influence your genetic code. Um, we see developmental risk factors. So if you were um, a child in a high-stress environment, particularly in an abusive environment or a neglectful environment, or you had lots of childhood illnesses, if you were victimized in, as an adult in a high-stress scenario where you get PTSD, but really the critical one being high stress, high stress, lack of control, lack of, um, uh, of an environment where you're feeling supported or safe in, and the earlier in life that you are, Okay, this changes how our brains process information, right? And there's, uh, we'll probably do another one on, because um, this is really relevant to something known as adverse childhood events or ACE scores, which has been found to be predictive of, of early mortality and higher rates of heart disease and other um, uh, big bad diseases. But when you look at these same sort of risk factors, and then we also look at things like anxiety and depression, and we look at things like pain beliefs, what people believe to be true or what they understand to be true, uh, that may not be actually true about pain, um, coping style. So when we're looking at the way that we actually are, have been told or encouraged to cope with pain and other things, when we take all those risk factors together, these are the major risk factors for the development and maintenance of chronic pain. But when we chart them out on our pain triangle, what we find is essentially all of those risk factors are either in that cognitive element or the emotive element of the pain triangle. Okay. They're not found in the structural or sensory realm. This is why if you don't have MRIs, don't predict people who are going to have back pain. 
uh, this is the reason why I'll, why people are asking about things like were you abused as a child? Because what this does is actually induces changes in the brain. And, it, and I don't want to I, I get a little concerned when I talk about structural changes and even in the brain, how things get processed differently, because while it's important to understand that, it is also important to realize that you can get better because the brain is much more what we call plastic than we gave it. It can heal in ways that we didn't give it credit for, but we have to actually understand it so that we can address therapies there effectively. So we see the risk factors are in the that heat aspect and the oxygen aspect, not in the fuel source aspect, yet all of our therapies, or at least all the common treatments that we do, target that structural aspect. But what about when we see improvements? When people get better from chronic pain, where are those changes? What aspects of the triangle seem to be improving? And lo and behold, uh, when we improve people's pain beliefs, when people understand pain and it changes the belief system about pain, really, um, you know, what pain means and, and understanding pain is a danger sign, not as a damage sign. And as people change their coping strategies, really from a way that is, is working with and being involved with, with people uh, and working for yourself and taking an active control strategy when it comes to managing and, and improving your pain rather than relying on uh, people who are going to cut, poke, and drug you or manipulate you or tell you that you have to take this magic supplement. Lo and behold, as people get more active and involved in their pain therapy, those people can improve. And as we improve something known as pain self-efficacy, self-efficacy meaning is your confidence. As you practice and get better and as you learn the tools and techniques to target and understand these mo these other areas of the pain triangle, lo and behold, you can get better from chronic pain. And also with this, it actually lowers psychological distress. And as you're less distressed, you feel uh, your experience of pain improve, uh, gets uh, improves as well. So it's the reason I'm hammering this home that when you understand modern pain neuroscience, when we understand that pain is created in the brain requiring three components, that sensory aspect, oftentimes involved with sensory transmission coming from the body. But we still require these other processes in the brain, one that signs a value to that signal and says, is this unpleasant? And this not? What, what happened in the past? What has this meant before previously? And it also has this, this other brain, the higher level thinking patterns, appraisal, attention. How much attention? Does it matter? Is it danger? Is it not? Um, what other scenarios? When we put all these together, right? It is only when you take all these components together that you create an experience of pain, all of which it changes, it, it takes place in the brain. We now have multiple areas to target, at least multiple areas to identify what is driving the, our pain fires. And then we can address therapies against those drivers rather than throwing up stuff against the wind, injecting people blindly, throwing drugs up, saying, I wonder if this drug is going to work or maybe this one's not or you got to try this one willy nilly fashion that makes absolutely no sense. And this lack of treatment understanding comes from lack of pain understanding. Okay? When we don't understand pain, when we don't understand how pain is created, when we continue to misidentify pain as being either or, body, brain, emotional, physical, or, uh, or no susception, or not, and we realize that that's not true, that all pain has three components, and it's just how those components differ, it changes everything. And with that, I'm going to say thank you very much, and until the next time, stay well.